0: Okay, it's been a while. It's been since October the 24th uh, since we looked at uh, at Romans chapter 5. So if you'll open your Bibles uh, back to that place. We will resume our study at verse 5 of Romans 5. After the 24th of October, there was Halloween and then there was the three um, little... Discussions about our move. There was Thanksgiving. There was a congregational meeting on the fifth. Then we broke, and so gosh, it's been uh, over two months since we've been Uh, together—two and a half months—in Romans five. So let me let me read you the first five verses, just as we um, as we get going. Lord willing, we'll try to cover verses five and six tonight. Because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For when we were still without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. We uh, spent several weeks uh, back in October over this discussion of glorying in tribulation. That was something that all of us find rather difficult to do, glorying in that which we feel so painful, and uh, tried to... Uh, from this text give reasons as to why the, the Apostle Paul would make such an assertion, why he would make such an appeal, why we would ever tell people to glory in tribulation. But he does. And then the final thing he says is that this um, uh, character will produce hope. And that's where we want to pick up tonight. The hope of verse 4 is supposed to be something that provides for us a, a measure of certainty, a measure of safety, a measure of confidence that we indeed are um, are sons and daughters of the living God. Now, that hope, that hope that tribulation or glory in the tribulation is supposed to produce is a hope that does not disappoint. The King James says it differently. A hope that does not make ashamed. That's the hope that you and I are supposed to have. A hope that we know has attached to it um, a great deal of confidence. And it's amazing how many of the people of God continue to struggle with a lack of uh, certainty that they are genuinely sons and daughters of the living God. Well, um, there are two ways that we're going to mention tonight, two ways that that Paul mentions that are supposed to help us know with confidence that we are indeed the objects of the love of God. Two things that he mentions here. One of them is in verse 5, and then verse 6 starts a whole new section, but let's concentrate on verse 5 for a moment. Now, hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Gang, uh, one of the ways that you and I are supposed to have developed a certain confidence about our standing comes via the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Now, interestingly enough... This is the first time that Paul, in the book of Romans, the first time that Paul introduces us to the role and the uh, ministry of the Holy Spirit. It's also the first time that he introduces, introduces us to the love of God. But he says here that the hope that, is, that has no shame attached, has no disappointment, uh, has no lack of confidence in it, is one that is ours because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. That is, that confidence comes through some inner sense of God's love ministered to us by the Holy Spirit. There is to be in the life of the individual believer... An inner sense, authored by the Holy Spirit, that we are loved. Now, for some, that sense can be quite strong. But for others, it is not quite as strong and even mild. And I would suggest to you that that is the one that is more common. But, over and above, our, our intellectual apprehension... ...of the love of God. That is, over and above that sense that we know that the Bible teaches it... ...we know that it's there taught... ...over and above that... ...there is a direct and immediate assurance given by the Holy Spirit... ...who, according to this text, has been poured out in our hearts. That sense, that that measure of assurance is something that is given us by the ministration of the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. I say to you, my brother and sister in Christ, in some degree, all of us need to have tasted a portion of that. That the Holy Spirit has ministered in such a way that we since, over and and above having been taught it, but that we sense that we are loved. In some point of your Christian experience, there should be some measure, whether small or great, that the Holy Spirit communicates to your soul that you are loved. That's what I think Paul is is teaching here. This man that can glory through his tribulation, is the man in whose heart the love of God has been poured. This, this man who looks back, I, um, I had uh, lunch today with a man who went through a, a very ugly, hard, difficult, uh, attorneys fighting, courtroom battle, divorce kind of thing, several years back. Actually, it was, it, was a, it was several years ago, but he said, I'm just about at the place where I can finally say I thank God uh, for what I went through. Now, that's a hard thing to do for, the, for any of... It, it's taken him four years to get there. But this man who glories in his tribulation, knowing the things that tribulation produces, is the man who has also had the love of God Poured out in his heart by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Our confidence, ladies and gentlemen, um, is not... Our confidence in our standing, our confidence that we are real, our confidence that we are genuine, our confidence that we are really indeed the sons and daughters of God is not something that is attached to good performance, but it is attached to something that the Holy Spirit has done in, a, uh, in relationship to the love of God, the Holy Spirit has communicated immediately and directly, and individually and personally the love of God to each of us in some in some degree or the other. Um, gang, um, um, I, I this is a fairly long story, and I, I'm not I'm not trying to um, bore you with. I hope this will illustrate what I'm trying to say. say. Um, In my devotional life, uh, I read through the Bible all the time. I I start, uh, when I've read through it and I'm starting over again, this is the way I always start. I always start with Genesis 1-1, Psalm 1-1, and Matthew 1-1. And and then I start reading through it again. And, And I've done that for years. I've been a Christian 30 years and I've done that for years. As soon as I finish up reading it through, then I go back and I start back at Genesis 1 1, Psalm 1 1, Matthew 1 so 1. About the middle of the fall, I, um, I did that again. I had, finished, uh, I had completed my read, read through the Bible, and so I started all over again. And of course, I was reading through Genesis. And i gang, I've read, I, I'm not, uh, this is not a, I mean, I've read through Genesis a lot, uh, numerous times. But I was struck this time. I was struck this time with something that I had never been struck with before. And it is that God is always doing something that is unpredictable and unexpected. The classic illustration for me was in the story of um, uh, Jacob's, uh, Jacob and Esau. Because if you know anything about that story, you know that there are two sons... There's a firstborn and a secondborn, and of course Esau is the firstborn. Jacob is the secondborn, but it's Jacob that God has chosen to work through and carry through a line of redemption. And yet, ladies and gentlemen, Jacob, if you and I had, would, would meet up with Esau and Jacob one day, I, I guarantee you 90% of you would prefer Esau over Jacob. Esau was an outdoorsman, he was kind of a woodsy kind of guy, his daddy liked him, you know, his daddy didn't particularly care for the other boy because he was a mama's boy, he spent his time in the kitchen uh he knew a lot of recipes but he didn't know much about manliness he you know he, he dressed up to, to become somebody that he wasn't so that he could steal his brother's blessing he uh, he outfoxed him out of the birthright he uh, and then after all that Jacob is coming back home and and Esau is I mean Jacob is so afraid he's going to get killed by Esau and what does Esau do he forgives him and you know my, my point in telling that story is if i had one of those two people to love it wouldn't have been Jacob. It would have been Esau. He was far more lovely. He was far more appealing on a human level. But the point is, ladies and gentlemen, uh, and, and um, G.K. Chesterton calls God's love, he says, he calls it God's furious love. What I'm suggesting to you is that God in His grace has communicated love, and we're going to say in just a second, How this is repeated. But God has communicated love to people that if they make the mistake of trying to feel loved by examining their performance, they will always fail. Did that make any sense? That is, if you make this mistake... If you make the mistake of saying, the reason that I know I'm loved is because I, um, I am such a faithful church attender. Or am I am such a marvelous giver or a, 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 a laborer in the kingdom. If you make that mistake, you will never sense this immediate uh, ministry of the Holy Spirit who... Is poured out by God always on those that, I mean, the theme is absolutely pervasive in the scriptures. That is, that God is always choosing the uglier of the two. Um, he's always choosing the secondborn instead of the firstborn. He's always going after those which are, which are, in the world's eyes, not the winner. Well, that would be you and me, ladies and gentlemen. And having said that, I I now want to read you what he says in verse 6. Because it so marvelously confirms to you what I just said. For when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. Now guys... I'm suggesting to you that there are two ways that these two verses are teaching. There are two ways that we we can know that indeed we are loved by God. One is this immediate sense of an inward testimony of the Holy Spirit who has been poured out in our hearts. The second one is found in verse 6. That is, the second way, the second proof of God's love to us. And I want you to notice what Paul takes us to. For when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. Now, I'm suggesting to you, ladies and gentlemen, that what Paul is trying to do is give the people of God another reason to have confidence in their standing. And he points them for that confidence. He points them... To the cross of Jesus Christ. If you want to know that God loves, then don't look at the teachings of Christ. Don't look at the miracles of Christ. Look at the cross of Christ. Uh, the love of God is, has been mentioned, as I said in verse 5, in Paul's continuing effort to give you and I a greater and greater assurance of the certainty of our salvation. But now, in verses 6 through 10, he goes on to make sure, I think, that we fully realize that this love of, what this love of God is all about. And it's not your love to God. I hope you got that. It's His love to us. And it's that love that is so, so marvelously portrayed in Christ's death for the ungodly. Now, back up with me. First of all, Notice how you and I are being described once again. Um, For when we were still without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. And then verses 7 and 8, which are so famous, verse uh, 8, you find God demonstrates His love towards us in that while we were still sinners... Gang, the constant theme of the New Testament is that Jesus died, Jesus Christ died for people who were without strength, ungodly, and sinners. Um, this this whole idea of being without strength, gang, there is a doctrine that is um, uh. I, I, in some circles, it's not particularly like, but I think in, in, in most evangelical circles, it's pretty much agreed upon. I know in Roman Catholicism, they have a little trouble with it, but um, it, it's, the, it's the doctrine of total depravity. You ever heard of that? I remember the first time I ever mentioned the doctrine of total depravity um, to my sister. My sister had just had a baby. And, uh, and she, the little baby, had done something that was bad, and, and I said, Oh, it's just the doctrine of total depravity being lived out in my niece. And my sister just jerked her head back and said, My daughter is not deprived of anything. And I said, I didn't say total depravity. I said total depravity. And total depravity is a doctrine that teaches what Paul mentions here in Romans 5 or 6. Do you know how the New Testament and Old describes you in an unregenerate state? Did I confuse you with that? There's before you became a Christian, in your unregenerate state, do you know what one word is used to summarize that state? It is the word dead. Paul says to the Ephesian church, and you were Dead. In your trespasses and sins. That is, before you had been made alive, you were dead. Now, this is just another way of saying the same thing. In terms of spiritual strength, you didn't have any. When Christ died for you, He didn't do so in the midst of your spiritual health. He died for people who were without strength. In fact, so much so, that the New Testament describes them as being dead. Dead. Ladies and gentlemen, I I won't take this too much further, because it would get us in a whole lot of trouble if I were to take this discussion too much further. But if you'll think about that, for a moment, if the New Testament describes you as being spiritually dead, it will influence your whole theological system. Well, here it is again. For while we were without strength, without any spiritual strength whatsoever, Christ died for The ungodly. You know those ungodly sinners without strength who were dead in their trespasses and sins. That's what the New Testament is teaching us. And and Paul is teaching us that as a display of the love of God. Gang, if God loved lovely, I could understand that. But He loves the ungodly. And I'm convinced that the hardest thing for a professing believer to believe is that God loves you as much as he loves you. I believe that one of the biggest problems that you and I have is enjoying the love of God. I believe that one of the things that you and I miss out on the most is enjoying the love of God, including me. Um, when I was in seminary, um, I wrote a paper on the death of Christ and um, well, I'm, I'm really fixing to be arrogant here, uh, so just kind of cut me a little bit of slack. Um, but do you know when Jesus Christ is on the cross and he uh, he cries out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Well, I, my paper was addressing a lot, but it was addressing that this particular page in the paper. I forget how long the paper was, 30 pages or so, but... Uh, On that page, I was addressing this cry, this plaintive cry from the Son of Man from the cross. And I said in the paper something like this. I said, and for this inexplicable moment, the Trinity was torn asunder as the Father turns His back on the Son. That is, Jesus is crying out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And I'm saying about that statement that in this one moment, the Trinity is torn asunder while um, uh, the Father turns His back on His Son. And the professor who graded that paper took a red pen and and wrote a, a line from the bottom of the page to the top of the page and wrote this word. Never! Never! And what he was saying is that the Trinity could by no means be ever torn asunder. Now here's my arrogance. I still think I'm right. I still think that one of the ways that the love of God is demonstrated is that the Father was willing to tear asunder the Trinity for a moment, for a season, so that you could be loved. There's no place else to look, ladies and gentlemen. I shouldn't say there's no place. The place. That the Apostle Paul gives us as the place to look as proof of the love of God. For whom? For the lovely? For for the ungodly? For the sinner? And for those who are without strength. The place that he tells us to turn to seek a proof of that love for that kind of folk is the cross of Jesus Christ. And on that cross is the time when the Son of God says, Why? Why would you do this? Why would you turn your back on me? Why would you forsake me? Do you know the answer to that question? Because of furious, furious love. I love that that, that term. That G.K. Chester. did. Furious love. I'm telling you, go back to my story about Jacob. It takes furious love to love somebody like Jacob. I don't like him. He was he was a conniving, scheming, lying. But yet that's the one that God Face down. You want an example of without strength, ungodly sinner? Well, just look at Jacob. Or you could look inside the confines of your own heart. You'll find the same person there. There is, there is no greater evidence of God's determination to love than people like Jacob and like me. Now guys, to to apply that just rather hurriedly, if you make the mistake of saying, the reason that I am safe is because, do you know how much money I give to the church? Do you know how much tutoring I do at the Neighborhood Christian Center? Do you know how long I've gone to church and been faithful in church attendance? If you make that mistake, you will never find assurance. The place where you come, the the, the place to which you must look to develop certainty is furious love. And that's the hardest thing in the world for us to understand, I think. I think the Christian community understands a lot of theological issues far better than they understand that God so loved the world. I want to do one quick thing, and then we'll kind of move on. We better hurry. But I, if you've still got your Bibles open, I want you to... I, I, maybe I've done this in here before. I want you to go with me to John 17. I know I've done it a lot, but I, it'll tell you just how how overwhelmed I am with this. John 17. John 17 is a passage that's famous... Uh, It's famous because there's books written about John 17, apart from John uh, 11 or John 9. But there's whole books written about John 17. The reason that whole books are written about John 17 is because it contains a prayer. It contains the high priestly prayer. It contains the prayer of Jesus Christ. Guys, uh, I've said this often, but the Lord's prayer is not in Matthew 6. The Lord's prayer is in John 17. Jesus taught us to pray the Lord's Prayer, the one that we call the Lord's Prayer, but the one that He prayed is this one, John 17. And there is so much unbelievable richness in this study. I mean, there's all kinds of books written on John 17 because it's the prayer of Jesus. All kinds of stuff said in here that we could fix our attention on. But let me ask you this question before I show you what I want to show you. Do you think that if the Son of Man asks for something that the father would say no. That is Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, turning to the Father and asking him for something. What do you think will be the inevitable reply of God the Father? I don't know about you, but I would bet I put my money on God the Father saying absolutely. I want you to see one of the things that the son of man asks for. Um Let's begin in verse twenty, just because we. No, let's not. Uh, yeah, let's begin there. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they will, uh, they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me, and the glory which you gave me, I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one. I and them. Here it is. I and them, and you and me. That they may be perfect in one. And that the world may know that you have sent me. And not only that the world may know that you have sent me, but the world may know that you have loved them as you have loved me. Do you see that word as, ladies and gentlemen? It doesn't say. Here's what I'm asking. That you would love them kind of sort of like the way you love me or similar to the way that you love me. I'm asking you, Father, to love them like you love me. And I say, ladies and gentlemen, I, I believe that many of us, Let's say all of us in this room have experienced the grace of God. But I'm not sure we understand that. That we are loved. That God the Father loves me like he loves Jesus. Now, that is why I can be confident that is why I can feel safe and secure and have assurance because of the Father's furious love commitment to me. Doesn't have anything to do with me. Doesn't have anything to do with my failings. Go take a look at Jacob. He's a cad. And yet, the Father determined to love him and he was he refused to not love him. (laughs) And, And in a sense, that's what he has done with us. We've we got to finish verse 6. But um, um, when we were without strength, understand that that's a description of those that, that He is loving. There's one other little phrase in there that I want you to see. And then I'm going to close with a hymn and, and then we're through. But um, for when we were without, still without strength in due time. Um, you, you notice that the implication in due time. That is that there's somebody up there calling the shots. Somebody is saying, okay, the time has come. Okay, son of man, it's time to go. There was a, there was a reasoned out fullness of time. In fact, Paul says that again in Galatians 4. He, in, in, the, in that book, he calls it the fullness of time. And here he says, in due time. Gang, what I'm suggesting to you is you get, you get an allusion there to the father having planned to do what he's done and now unfolding that plan. It happened when? It happened right when the father said, it's time. It's, uh, it's time to move. It's the father who planned it in due time. And when due time rolled around... An angel visited Joseph and Mary and there was a baby that was conceived in her womb. In due time! Right when the father said, it's time to go. Um, The fact that God thought of it, conceived it, and planned it, all of it proves that God has made a commitment of love to His people. And He loves me not He loves me. He loves me in the midst of knowing I have no strength, I am ungodly, and I am a sinner. So, therefore, I can can feel pretty good about being loved because it had nothing to do with any kind of um, contribution that I might have made. It is Christ impaled upon a cross where you and I can see the love of God in its fullness. Now, if that doesn't convince you of the love of God, then you might want to consider again the people for whom all of this was done. People like Jacob. People like Jimmy Young. Not the good, not the pretty, not the the godly, but those who were ungodly. Um... You know, and one of the reasons that I think the love of God is hard for us to grapple with is because I don't think we are willing to admit or have yet realized the condition uh, or the, uh, the the depth of our sinful condition, and thus it influences how we appreciate and enjoy the love of God. That's a principle, ladies and gentlemen. It's found in Luke seven. He who has been forgiven much loves much. Remember? So the, so the implication is if you don't think you've been forgiven much, then you don't tend to have much love in return. You know, Well, what I'm suggesting is uh, because we don't have a full orb understanding of the depth of our own depravity, um, this love of God thing never quite breaks through in its fullness. Um, I'll close with a hymn. And I'm and I'm going to sing some of it, but um, uh, this is what I think Paul would have us do. There is um, when I when I graduated from seminary, I had been working as a um, uh, a youth director in a little church in Louisville, Mississippi. Um, all three years uh, of my seminary career, we went up every weekend to Louisville, Mississippi. It was about uh, two hours away, and they, uh, they liked us so much that they bought us a trailer. And we lived in a trailer for three years, at least on weekends and every summer. Um, and um, I just loved being a youth director. I loved it. It was, a, it was great fun. I loved the kids. We had this little thing. Um, uh, actually, I'd stolen a name from a local outfit called Capthi, C-F-A-P-T-H-I. It's really not a word it 's got too many consonants in it, but uh, it stood for can 't find a place to have it and we would move around from house to house with this youth program and i 'm telling you this home would host it, and then this home would host it, and then this home would host it and and it, it was just the greatest it was the greatest youth ministry it was just it was just hopping and um, uh, every every church going kid in Louisville, Mississippi, which you know and many, but uh, every church going kid in louisville Mississippi um, came to that thing on sunday nights i mean we could barely find houses big enough we a lot of times men outside anyway I, I tell you that to say this when uh, when i graduated and was leaving was uh, going to ocala florida this group of kids got together and they bought us a little present and that was real nice but they had worked on a song because they knew it was my favorite and uh, we gathered in a room kind of like this and uh, these kids got together And they sang this song to me. And I wept from the first verse to the fourth. Um, I can sing it with Jimmy uh, leading us, and I can still weep over this song. Because it is, um, well, I guess it's just my favorite. And I think it's some of your favorites. But um, it is an Isaac Watts tune, When I Survey the Wonder's Cross. Don't you love that word survey? When I survey. Not when I give it a casual glance. Not when I look over my shoulder and see that there's a cross. Not when I bought one at the, at the jewelers and, and with the little man on it. Uh, not, not the one that is on the back of our cars and trying to tell people that we don't speed. Uh, when I <laughs> survey. When I survey. The wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died. Have you ever surveyed the cross on which the Prince of Glory died? Because that, ladies and gentlemen, is the proof that Paul points us to. That God loves ungodly, undeserving, no strength sinners. When I survey the wondrous, my richest gain I count but lost in poor contempt. poor contempt. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast. Save. I don't want to boast in anything except what Jesus Christ accomplished for a guilty, undeserving, no strength, ungodly sinner. Uh, All the vain things that charm me most. Oh, look at all those stuff that charms us. We get charm out of DVD players. All those vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them for to His blood. And then those last two stanzas are... Now, now, we're still surveying, ladies and gentlemen. We're not glancing, we're surveying the wondrous cross. See from His hands. Look. See from His head, His hands, His feet. Sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did ere such love and sorrow meet? Did it? Has there ever been such love and sorrow gather in one spot? Or thorns compose so rich a crown? Has there ever been a crown like that? Were the whole realm of nature mine? That were a present far, far, far too small. Love so amazing. So amazing that it was poured out by the Holy Spirit and then demonstrated on the cross for ungodly, sinners without strength, love so amazing, so divine, demands. That kind of love that you and I simply have not yet grasped, that love demands my soul, my life. my brother and sister in Christ Paul has inserted these two verses and then 7, 8, 9 and 10 he's going to go on and give you more information about it but he wants you to know something he wants you to know that God loves you so much that in spite of Dr. Jim DeYoung he ripped apart the Trinity so he could demonstrate it that's quit. our father I am um, I'm as my understanding is as meager as anybody in this room but oh how I want the Holy Spirit of God to convey to me the richness and profundity and depth of the love of God for sinners such as I. Father, I see you chase down Jacob and make sure that he uh, is transformed and I've seen you do that to me. And I pray that uh, the fact that you have chased us down and that you have knocked us down and that you have transformed us will be that it will provide that wonderful base of security and confidence and safety that your people can walk out of here and walk through any circumstance knowing that they walk through it as the object of the love of God. Father, I can't teach it well enough. My My tongue is too stammering to handle such doctrines as these we beg the Holy Spirit to impart to us at the base of our soul a rich survey of the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died. Might we find through that survey clear testimony from heaven that we are the loved We are the loved ones of the living God. We ask it knowing that no flesh can produce it. Holy Spirit, have mercy on us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Good night, all. Hope to see you next week.